Amen. Thank you uh, so much, Kim. I, I asked Kim if she would lead us each week just selfishly because I like to have my heart kind of prepared with a time of worship and just gets me thinking about all of God's precious promises and just uh, His goodness and His grace. And so I hope you appreciated that as well. And uh, we'll do that each week as we come together here uh, for Prophecy Night. Unfortunately, the live streamers, we don't have it set up for them to catch the music, but uh, we're, uh, we're just thankful that uh, she would do that for us. So thank you for that, Kim. Uh, so I want to welcome you tonight to this uh, new series. I'm calling it The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever. And, you know, the closer we get to 2025, 2026, you know, the mid-20s, late 20s, which the Luciferians have absolutely telegraphed is their goal line for establishing the new world order, the more urgent, I believe, the teaching of God's Word becomes. And so over the next several months, if the Lord doesn't come back, uh, we're going to be discussing in detail the clear teaching in Scripture about Christ's return and the many ways in which the stage is being set uh, through current events and geopolitical events and so forth uh, for his return. We're going to run those through the grid of Scripture, and uh, we're going to be talking about that. don't know how long the series will go, but I can tell you that the first, uh, I've got 16 sections so far that I've sketched out, and each one of those will probably run several weeks. Uh, some of them may only run one or two, but uh, the first one I'm certain uh, will run uh, at least three or four weeks. So you can kind of do the math, and I'm going to be adding to it as the Lord puts things on my heart and as things happen and uh, develop in the world in which uh, we live. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was telling uh, someone before we uh, started that, uh, you know, when I speak at conferences, which are typically about an hour is the allotted time at conferences, I typically have 200 to 250 slides and uh, tonight I've got more than that. So I'm pretty sure that what I've prepared is going to be bleeding over in the next two or three uh, weeks, which is fine. I like to prepare ahead of time and stay ahead of it. But, you know, I've been studying Bible prophecy, if you know my testimony, for since I was a kid, over 40 years. Um, and I've been teaching and writing about prophecy officially for some 30 plus years. And one thing that I've noticed is that most Christians today have a very anthropocentric view of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Uh, the Greek word anthropos, man, centric, meaning central. Uh, it's a very man-centered view of the Bible. In other words, they think that the Bible is all about personal salvation, personal Christian living, life here and now on the earth. They tend to be consumed by that speck on the timeline of eternity that begins when you're born and ends when you die. And make no mistake, to be sure, personal salvation, redemption through the blood of Christ is crucial. And the Bible reveals the only way that a person can be rescued from the penalty of sin, which is through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But there is more to the Bible than individual redemption. And there is more to human life than that period of time between the cradle and the grave. The Bible is not simply a book of personal redemption. Rather, it's a book that reveals God's plan for all of creation. God is working out his plan for the entire world. And the Bible explains that plan. And as you might expect, that plan, this is a real shocker, but it has a beginning and it has an end, just like the Bible itself. The Bible is a book uh, written 
over a period of 1,500 years from start to finish, written by some 40 different human authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, in three different languages, by the way, on three different continents. And yet it comprises uh, the all-sufficient uh, revelation of God to mankind, everything we need for life and godliness. But we uh, put them together, the, 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 the revelation of God that happened over 1,500 years through the written uh, pen, in what we call a book. You know, they called them a codex originally, but it's a, it's a book. And, and guess what? You start on page one and you go to the end. That's the, the story. And uh, so that's the way stories work. They have a beginning and they have an end. Uh, you know, the other day we were trying to move a couch through a bedroom door at our house, and it was uh, quite a, a difficult job, no matter which way we turned it and flipped it, and it just wouldn't seem to fit through the doorway. So as an illustration, uh, let's suppose that, let's say Randy, since you're on the front row, I'm going to pick on you. Uh, let's suppose, Randy, you and I were going to move a couch, all right? And so we walk up to it, you and I, together, uh, and I say to you, hey, we're going to move this couch from here to there. And here's how it's going to go. Here's what we're going to do, Randy. I want you to stand there, and I'll stand here, and then, and then, and then what? Right? There's got to be more to the plan. There's not just a beginning. We've got to be able to finish the plan. We've got to be able to put the plan together and accomplish the task. A plan's never going to succeed if it doesn't have a beginning and an end. And God's Word reveals His plan of the ages, His plan for all of creation from beginning to end. And that's why Bible prophecy is so crucial. Because if you leave off the end, you're like a wheel spinning off its axis. Uh, plenty of things to do between the cradle and the grave. Plenty of things that the Bible teaches us about, exhorts us about in our own personal Christian growth. We are to make a difference in this earth, certainly. But God, the creator of the universe, revealed his plan to us from beginning to end. So the way I like to chart this out is let's say that this is uh, God's plan for the universe. And that plan, as we said, and we're going to look at a scripture in a moment, but that plan has a beginning. And we'll start, uh, let's just say, with the creation of the world, Genesis 1.1. And then it moves on in time to the creation of the nations. And then ultimately in Genesis 12 to the calling of Abraham and the establishment or the creation of Israel. And then the creation of the church. And this is sort of the creative realm of God's plan. So if we start 6,000 years ago with creation, and then we get to the table of the nations in Genesis uh, uh, 10, some, you know, 1,600, 2,000 years later, and then you get to uh, the creation of Israel some 4,000 years later, and then the church uh, some 2,000 years later, and here we are in the church age uh, today. Uh, but the plan doesn't stop there, because every group that you see on the screen there is made up of human beings, and of course, we know that at the beginning of God's plan, there was a problem. There was a predicament that needed to be solved, and that predicament was you and I blew it. <laughs> Mankind took a great big bite of the apple and fell, and God then set in motion a plan to redeem mankind. But he didn't just do it as a solitary focus of, I've got to save you know, JB or Randy or Wendy or Kim or whoever. It's part of his overall plan to redeem the entire world, the entire earth, from the curse of sin. And so as we move forward in the plan, we see kind of in uh, reverse order God's plan of redemption. 
And it's going to start with each one of these groups. He's going to start by the rapture of the church, rescuing us from this present evil age, then the restoration of Israel back into the land. We're going to talk about that tonight. And then the retribution of the nations. All those nations, those Gentile enemy nations that have in, in extreme anti-Semitism uh, come against and persecuted God's people, Israel, they are going to get what's coming to them. And then ultimately the redemption of all creation when God makes all things new by destroying this sin-stricken earth and creating it again in sinless perfection. So the Bible comes full circle with a beginning and an end. But along the way of God's plan, he certainly has a plan for the salvation of individual men, but that's not the sum total of it. God has a plan for Israel as he promised them plainly in the Old Testament. God has a plan for the church the bride of Christ. God has a plan for angels and for fallen angels and for demons. And the ultimate goal is to bring in the kingdom. And this is God's plan of the ages. Now, we, we can see that it has a clear beginning and a clear end, like any plan should have. You don't want to be left in limbo. And of course, our minds might go to Genesis 1.1. Uh, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, Genesis is a book of beginnings. And it, and it starts appropriately so with these three words. It's actually only two words in Hebrew, but in the beginning. You know, it amazes me how many believers are you know, very familiar with Genesis 1.1 and can cite it, and yet they don't naturally ask after reading those three words, okay, in the beginning, but wait a minute, what about the end? <laughs> if there's a beginning... There has to be an end. But the reality is God's plan of the ages that we're going to be talking so much about in the months to come doesn't actually start there. That's the beginning of creation, yes, but uh, his plan really isn't revealed in his revelation to mankind until the plot begins to thicken a little bit. And once Adam and Eve fell, uh, bringing the curse of sin upon all creation, that's when God's plan was set in motion. And so shortly thereafter, we see in Genesis chapter 3, this conversation between the Creator and Satan, the serpent. We know he's, the, we know he's Satan because the Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that that serpent of old is the devil and Satan. That's almost a direct quote. So here we have, after the fall of man, God confronting the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, capital S, a reference there to ultimately Christ. Uh, notice, he, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the introduction to the cosmic battle of the ages that constitutes God's plan of the ages. And we're going to come back to this verse many times in this uh, The Time Is Now uh, series. But so many questions spring forth from this one verse. Uh, first of all, how can a woman have a seed? You know, in Hebrew, that would have been a contradiction in terms because the seed comes from the male. And so we see here, and this is the reason it's capitalized uh, in the uh, New King James, which is what I'm going to be using. I'll always indicate otherwise if I pick a different version for a particular verse. Uh, but uh, it's, it's referenced because it's a veiled reference to, it's capitalized because it's a veiled reference to the virgin birth. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Mary conceived not through Joseph, but through the Holy Spirit, so that Christ was without sin. So uh, that's one question. How can a woman have a seed? But who is the seed of the woman? 
That's another question that should naturally rise from the words on the page at this point in God's narrative, God's plan of the ages. Who is the serpent's seed? You ever thought about that? Only recently have I really begun to to think along those lines. I mean, obviously we know the cosmic battle, as I've talked about in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, is between God and Satan. But let's be good observers and good Bible students here. And it says that the conflict is between, uh, you know, your seed, Satan, and her seed, the seed of the woman, ultimately uh, the incarnation, the virgin birth of Christ. Um, uh, so who's the serpent seed? How will the seed of the serpent bruise the heel of the woman's seed? How will the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent? And by the way, the word that you see there used twice, bruise, is actually a Hebrew word, uh, shiv peh. It's only used four times, twice right here in this verse in the entire Old Testament. And it literally means to grip hard or to crush. And the idea is, depending on where you're gripping, I mean, you can do some pretty serious uh, damage. Uh, one of the other times it's used is when Job is defending himself against Bildad, uh, one of his friends, and uh, he, he uses, he says, for he, the Lord, crushes me with a tempest. Now, if you know anything about Job, which, by the way, that's pretty spiritually, where's Kim? That's pretty spiritually mature for someone to think Job is my favorite story. You know, it's, it's a great one, but boy... We tend to try to keep it at arm's length lest it kind of rub off on us, you know. But, uh, but if you know anything about Job's story, you know that, I mean, it's pretty good description of what happened to him to think that he was utterly crushed. But if we go back to Genesis 3.15, here's the idea. The serpent may grip hard at a, at a relatively harmless part of Christ, so to speak, the heel, right? Uh, but Christ, on the other hand, is going to strike at the most vulnerable place on the human body, the head. And by doing so, Christ is ultimately going to crush God's enemy, Satan, entirely. He will destroy him. And so this, Genesis 3.15, is really the beginning of this narrative, God's plan of the ages for all of creation history. Uh, but again, it leaves us with more questions than answers, doesn't it? I mean, most notably, when will this happen? <laughs> I mean, right at the beginning of the book of beginnings, right after in the beginning, we see the plot line develop. But amazingly, most believers in these great last days of deception are content to leave that plot unresolved. They, oh, don't, don't bother me with end time stuff. It's too confusing. Nobody agrees. I'm just going to dismiss it, right? So we go from a cosmic battle that ensued in the garden, and then to skip ahead all the way to the end, we arrive at a new heaven and a new earth, and this is the end of the story. This is the culmination of God's plan of the ages. The Bible comes full circle to, once again, a pre-fall, perfect creation uh, when time shall be no more. So Bible prophecy matters now more than ever because God is working out his plan to a logical conclusion. And, and don't miss this, this is why we're here tonight and this is why we're going to be here, uh, Lord willing, till Jesus comes. Um, we are getting closer and closer to the end of that plan. And I know, you know, some skeptics might say, oh, people have said that for generations. They have, they have. 
But we're going to make the case that there's incontrovertible evidence that we are absolutely living in the last of the last days. You'd have to be blind not to see it. In ways, and I'm even going to talk about some of these tonight, that no other generation could claim. God's plan of the ages will culminate in the return of Christ to make all things new. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And uh, then he who he sat on the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This comes almost at the very end of God's plan of the ages as revealed to us in his word. The book of Revelation was written in, in 95, 96 A.D. Um, a lot of some scholars, many of them liberal, not all, but uh, mostly liberal scholars try to put Revelation much earlier. Um, but uh, I attended a debate years ago between Mark Hitchcock and Hank Hanegraaff and, uh, you know, over the dating of Revelation, and it was not even close. And even Hank Hanegraaff told me one time, yeah, I didn't do very well in that, in that d- debate. Uh, but yeah, there's no question that the book of Revelation is the final book in the Bible. It was written 95, 96 AD, and it tells us how the story is going to end. And you know, those who are obsessed with life on this earth only and ignore the entire subject of Bible prophecy are ignoring the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. The Apostle Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. I mean, why do you think the Bible, God's revelation of the plan of the ages, ends with these words? This is the last two verses in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Jesus said, Surely I am coming quickly. I mean, even most novice Christians can recite Genesis 1-1. But how many know this passage? Because the deception in this great last days of deception is so powerful that it has convinced most Christians that Bible prophecy is irrelevant, that it's a waste of time, that it does not matter. And I'm here to tell you it, it matters now more than ever. Because we want the words that God left us with in his self-revelation to echo in our hearts until he comes. So the time is now. Uh, Why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. When we get to the last days in God's plan of the ages, we should be even more interested in Bible prophecy than in previous ages. I mean, hopefully God's people of all ages were interested in studying how the story ends and what God's going to do to fix the problem of the curse of sin. But... Where we live today, we ought to be even more interested. You know, when, when, I'm, uh, when I'm watching a, a football game involving any other team besides the Cowboys, uh, I, I kind of am watching half-heartedly. You know, I might be multitasking on my commu- computer. I might get up and leave for the second and third quarter. But if I'm kind of interested, I'll typically come back and watch again when it gets near the end of the game just to see how it's going and kind of pay attention. In other words, I'm more interested in the game, the closer it gets to the end, right? You know, if you get behind 28 to nothing, you know, now my dad's one of these that he just, if if the other team scores first, 
he turns it off. I mean, that's how pessimistic he is. Um, I'm, like, I'm, I'm surprised he doesn't turn off if they make a first down. But uh, in my case, I'm a little more optimistic. But, you know, if you start getting to be 28 points behind, you might uh, even I'll turn it off, you know. Uh, and then, but, but the optimist in me will have me go back and check a couple hours later just in case there was a miraculous, you know, sort of Patriots, you know, Falcons type of comeback. Um, the closer we get to the end, the more we ought to be interested in the end times. And I believe we're living in the fourth quarter, so to speak, of God's plan of the ages. In fact, there's no question when you look at God's uh, outline in Scripture. But I think what is even more clear and what we're going to demonstrate over the course of this study is that we're not just living in the fourth quarter. We're probably living well past the two-minute warning. So if you look at God's plan of the ages on a panoramic overview of the ages, it starts with creation, Going back, using our dating system, it would be roughly 4004 B.C. And then you just kind of move forward in time till the, the, the kingdom comes. And guess where we're living? In the church age, which according to God's word is called the last days. Why is it called the last days? Because it's the last age prior to the coming of the kingdom. And because these are the last days in God's plan leading up to the kingdom, it should come as no surprise that the New Testament repeatedly challenges believers to be watchful and to wait expectantly. Uh, for example, Romans 8, this great passage uh, that talks about this. First, it says the earnest expectation of the creation. Remember, God's plan is about more than just you and me. It's about all of the created realm. And all of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting to see who's God's who God's children are. You know, right now we can't really tell them apart. You know, there are people who claim to be Christians that may not be. There are people who don't look like Christians. They may be. They just may not be living out their faith. But someday, when all is said and done, the sheep and goats are not going to be able to be confused. Uh, Paul goes on, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, remember the church in the present age is unique among all people in history in that we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No Old Testament saints ever got that. But we as a, as a mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile in one body, the bride of Christ, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Our souls have been redeemed the moment you place your faith in Christ. You've been born again by faith. The only way anyone ever gets saved from the penalty of sin, by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. But our bodies are not redeemed yet. I mean, that should be pretty self-evident. It's more self-evident for some of us than others. But it's pretty clear that our bodies have not been redeemed. And so Paul is saying here that someday, at the end of the age, we're going to see this culmination of God's plan. And notice what he says going on. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. It occurred to me as I was studying this passage this week and kind of and the last couple of weeks actually in leading up for tonight, that one of the reasons so many Christians don't persevere, that they can't tend to fall away, they backslide, they depart from the Lord, is because they've lost their hope, because they're not being taught about the return of Christ. They're not being taught about Bible prophecy. They're not being taught eschatology. And so what's there to wait for, right? But those of us who have the hope, that's why the rapture is called the blessed hope, 
We have a reason to eagerly wait. Uh, that word eagerly wait that we've seen uh, a couple of times, and I've got a couple more here. For example, Paul tells us in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are eagerly waiting for the Lord's return? We ought to be. We ought to wake up every day and think it could be today. It could be tonight, right? Uh, but that word eagerly wait is one word in Hebrew. It's apek dekamai. It's used seven times in the New Testament. All seven times it refers to the rapture. Every one of them. It refers to that moment when this mortal puts on the mortality. We're all changed. Uh, the dead in Christ rising first. All of that. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, put it this way in the context of talking about Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. He says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. See, so he came once as the suffering servant. He's going to come again as the victorious warrior. The second coming will be in two phases. He'll come once for the church. That's very clear. And we're going to make that case doctrinally as we go through this study. Uh, but then he'll come seven, roughly seven years later with the church, riding with him to inaugurate the long-awaited uh, kingdom. So the time is now. Uh, for the next several weeks, maybe months, again, if the Lord doesn't come back, we're going to examine several ways in which the stage is being set for the return of the Lord. And along the way, we're going to touch on just about every major aspect of eschatology, the biblical study of the end times. And the first section that I want to deal with uh, starting tonight is that the stage is being set prophetically. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, certainly everything we're going to be talking about in this series is prophecy related. That's why we're calling it Prophecy Night at Plum Creek. But there are all kinds of ways in which the stage is being set. But I thought it was important to start with specific ways in which we can point to something happening today and say that is setting the stage for this explicit biblical prophecy. So that's what I mean. It, it, it kind of goes without saying in some ways, especially if you are a Bible prophecy student. But let's master the obvious and let's start with the way the stage is being set uh, prophetically. Now, just to kind of tease a little bit some of the other topics that we're going to get to down the road, again, if the Lord doesn't come back right away, uh, we're going to talk about how, not necessarily in this order, because I haven't got that far yet, but we're going to talk about how the stage is being set satanically. What's going on in Satan's side of the plan that indicates we're getting close to the end times? Well, if you've read my two Spirit of the Antichrist books, you have some idea of what's going on behind closed doors and in smoke-filled rooms. We're going to talk about the stage being set geopolitically, geologically, technologically, economically, with CBDCs and digital currency and the coming economic collapse. We're going to talk about how the stage is being set atmospherically and even astronomically. We're going to talk about that asteroid which very few Bible teachers are talking much about. Uh, Apophis. We're going to talk about how the stage is being set medically and demonically and ecclesiastically and philosophically and genetically and academically, by the way, and militaristically and sadistically. All of these categories, to me, make an incontrovertible case that we are living on the cusp of entering into uh, the end times. But we start tonight with the stage being set uh, prophetically. And I've outlined, what is it, six things that I want to address uh, starting tonight. Again, we won't get through all of these. Uh, by the way, I, I failed to mention at the outset, 
Our pattern's going to be 10 or 15 minutes each week of worship to per set the stage and prepare our hearts, about an hour of teaching, and then I'll allow uh, questions after that, we'll, and we'll stay as long as uh, people want. We generally will shoot for 7.30 finish time, but if you have questions, we'll, we'll stick around if you have them. If you're watching this by live stream, and I know many people are, uh, at this point, the only way to participate in the Q&A is just to email us your questions, and we'll try to get to them the, the following week. Um, as we grow and settle into a routine, we might come up with a way that we can do it in real time, but for now, that's, uh, that's the best we can do. Uh, so as I go through this, if you have questions or comments, jot them down or make a mental note, and then at the end, we'll take questions uh, together. But these are some things that are happening that I believe are key moments that clearly relate to Bible prophecy in the form of setting the stage. Let's talk about the granting of statehood uh, to Israel. This is probably the biggest stage-setting event that has occurred in modern times, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. Because God's plan of the ages, as we saw in my chart, goes all the way back, going all the way back to Genesis 12, puts Israel at the forefront. And guess what? That doesn't change. Israel is still at the forefront at the end of the story. Israel is God's chosen nation, the apple of God's eye. On Thursday, I'm going to be on David Fiorazzo's Stand Up for the Truth, and we're going to talk about, he emailed me today, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism in, in America today, and also a rise of anti-Christian sentiment in the America today. But God's end times plan puts Israel front and center, and it requires that Israel have a homeland to return to. The reason this is so exciting and so crucial and the reason I'm leading off with it is you have to understand that for the last, you know, 1800 years since 70 AD to roughly well until 1948 Israel was not a nation. You know, you you pull out your Rand McNally map, it wasn't going to be on there. Or if you call up Google Maps and say get me directions to Israel, it's going to say nothing, not even any suggestions because there was no Israel on the map. But we know, as I said, that Israel is front and center in God's plan at the end. So when you see Israel becoming a nation, that's pretty significant. But let's look at some passages that make it clear that Israel is going to once again be center stage. Uh, for example, Jesus said in Matthew 24, referring to his second coming, that he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect, that in the context that refers to Israel, God's chosen nation, uh, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now this has been a promise that goes all the way back to Moses and his writings in the Pentateuch that Israel will someday be regathered and get their homeland. We could go to Deuteronomy, where the Lord God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and Gather you again from all the nations where the Lord God, your God, has scattered you. That has not happened yet. Certainly it didn't happen in 1948. Uh, Isaiah the prophet says, So it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown, and they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt. Just two major uh, metonyms for the places that Israel has been scattered to through the uh, centuries. But notice, they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. In the end times, nations will come and worship in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, both during the tribulation as well as in the millennium. 
at least for part of the tribulation. Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, says, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. There has to be an Israel on the map for Israel to return to Israel. I mean, that's not that complicated, I hope. Um, you want to do an interesting study sometime, get out a good concordance, or these days with digital technology, you can get, open your digital Bible, and just do a search for land in the Old Testament and see how many times it comes up again and again throughout the Old Testament. Phrases like, my land, my holy land, this holy land, your land, talking about God's holy land that belongs to Israel and so forth. Uh, so uh, Ezekiel kind of echoes the same thing we see again and again. Amos the prophet says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. Jeremiah, for behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Jeremiah goes on to say in that same passage, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents. Just a rhetorical, um, flowery way to say Israel is going to be planted here once again. Uh, and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound. Do you really think the Dome of the Rock is a problem for Almighty God? And that somehow that's going to contravene God's plan to bring Israel back to the land and rebuild the temple? By no means. And so as I've said often, uh, you know, the, the promised land for Israel, uh, based on Genesis 15, 18 to 21, encompasses far more than modern-day Israel. And to this day, Israel has never fully occupied, they possessed, Joshua tells us at one point they had the rights to the land, but they've never fully occupied it to this day. And so that's why it's so important to understand that even though Israel being a nation again is clearly a setting of the stage, and I'm going to say more about that in a second, uh, it, we need to make sure that we understand this isn't the fulfillment of the prophecy. They, they're they just squabbling over small sections of real estate and talking about giving some away and keeping some and dividing this and dividing that. that that's all. That, that Don't even be distracted by that. When Christ comes back, the kingdom is going to be Israel. Israel is going to be the center of the world. The King of kings and Lord of lords will rule in a one-world government of peace, righteousness, and justice from Jerusalem in the, in the millennial temple as described by Ezekiel the prophet. Uh, and, uh, and we're not there yet. Uh, but uh, if you think about the significance of the days in which we live, we could go back just 100 years ago uh, or so to the beginning of the Zionist movement. Now, whenever you, you talk about Zionism, you have to understand that word means different things to different people. And there are all kinds of you know, false views and, and, and false movements out there that are somehow connected to the term Zionism. But we're talking about biblical Zionism, God's love for Israel, his chosen nation that he made an unconditional covenant with, starting with Abraham, reaffirmed it with Isaac and Jacob, reaffirmed it with David and throughout the prophets. And it involves a future land, seed, and blessing that will emanate from the Holy Land, from Israel. And the rise of that modern belief that there's a future for Israel it goes back to 1896 when Theodore, Her Theodore Herzl wrote The Jewish State. 
And he's the one that convened the first Zionist World Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. And at that time, he put forth what was called the Uganda Plan. You know, Israel needs a homeland. Let's ship them to Uganda, right? But that certainly wasn't God's plan. But the interesting, the reason I bring up Herzl is that in his uh, diary, he has this famous uh, quote, uh, and I'm going to ask Gary if you'd read that for us. Let me make it a little easier for you. This is from September 3rd, 1897. Listen to what Herzl wrote. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter. Perhaps in five years, but certainly in 50, everyone will know it. When did he say this? 1897. Do the math. What happened about 50 years later? In 1948, Israel becomes a nation. So Basel was somewhat of a prophet, so to speak. I mean, he, he understood that God was not through with Israel. Uh, not Basel, uh, Herzl. That God was not through with Israel. That God had a plan for, future, for, for national Israel. And indeed, uh, you know, May 14, 1948 was crucial. Uh, she declared her independence. She was granted statehood. And this is prophetically significant because there has to be an Israel for the people of God, the Jews, to return to the land at the second coming. So the granting of statehood to Israel is a big one. Another uh, current event or event that I believe clearly sets the stage prophetically for the end times it relates to the battle of Gog and Magog. And uh, I'm going to try to be as succinct as I can about this because there's a lot of uh, people talking about it. Uh, generally speaking, I think Bible prophecy experts have the right idea, but there's also some misinformation out there. Uh, Randy and I have talked about it uh, at times in our, in our podcast because, to me, this is another major way in which the stage is being set prophetically. So let's look at the text. It comes from Ezekiel uh, 38. We looked at a passage from Ezekiel uh, 37. Uh, and Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, really is all prophetic. So it starts with, you know, 36 and references to the new covenant. Then 37, when God is going to bring Israel back to life again with the dry bones. And then here we have 38 and 39, this end times war involving Russia. And then what happens after that? For chapters 40 to 48, the, the millennial temple and the dimensions and the beauty and the grandeur of it. So we're in the section here where he's talking about this end times battle that we call the battle of Gog and Magog. The land of Magog refers to modern southern Russia. I mean, that's, to me, beyond dispute, even though, you know, you look at academic textbooks and people try to come up with all other theories about it. To me, it's, it's not a fact in dispute. Uh, and listen to what he says. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the ruler, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. He goes on, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all the troops, the house of Togarma, from the far north. So the allies of the Magogites, the Russians, according to Ezekiel in this last, this end times war, are what? Persia. Well, what's Persia? Modern day Iran. What else? Uh, Ethiopia. Well, what's Ethiopia today called? Sudan. Uh, put. Put is modern day Libya. Uh, Gomer. Gomer is modern day uh, Turkey, Eastern Turkey. Togarma is what? 
modern-day Syria, right along the Syria-Turkey border. Now, if you look at those nations across the bottom of the screen there, does anything stand out? You, you heard much about any of those in the news lately? <laughs> you sure have, or you've been asleep. Uh, I mean, they, they're all in the news every day with this Russia-Ukraine battle. And we, by the way, we've talked about on our podcast before how uh, you know the most direct route uh, that Russia is going to you know, come with this alliance, this northern alliance, is straight south, right through uh, Turkey. Uh, now, you know, they're going to align with other nations as well, and so it's, it's going to be you know, multiple uh, fronts, if you will. Um, but, uh, and, the, and the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 that they're going to come against Israel. Uh, so I believe, and I'll show you this on a chart in a moment, that the, this battle is going to happen after the rapture, prior to the uh, rise of the Antichrist and the establishment of the peace treaty that starts the clock ticking on the tribulation uh, period. Uh, and I believe it's, it's central to how things will unfold after the rapture in paving the way for this man of sin, the Antichrist, to take the helm. You know, in, in some conflicts, and we've seen this even in the last 10, 20 years uh, with Syria and Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth, uh, it, it's hard to tell our enemy from our ally, isn't it? Sometimes our enemy is our ally. Sometimes we arm them, train them, give them all kinds of weapons, and then, they, and then we go and blame them for you know, blowing up the Twin Towers, right? Uh, that's just what we do. We create Al-Qaeda, and then we, they turn on us. We've done this again and again. History repeats itself. Sometimes our allies become our enemies. Sometimes we fund the enemy. Sometimes we bomb the enemy. Even the most seasoned foreign affairs experts sometimes have trouble making sense of it all. It's hard to tell, especially today in this globalist environment, really who is influencing whom. You know, one of my sources uh, provided me with this helpful explanation of the alliances that are forming to pave the way for the Battle of Gog and Magog. I hope this clears it up for you, but this is essentially <laughs> kind of what we see happening uh, today. But there's one thing for sure. Nation states are rising and falling before our very eyes, and it's not pretty. We're seeing the stage set prophetically. Two of the prominent nations mentioned in Ezekiel's prophecy are getting pretty chummy. Right? Russia and Iran. Does that trouble anybody? It should. Um, so when will this battle take place? As I said, if you look at uh, this end times chart, and we'll come back to this again and again as a, a frame of reference. And by the way, all of the charts that you see throughout this series are available in the chart book, the Not By Works book of theological charts, diagrams, and illustrations. And I'll say more about that at the end. But uh, So you can kind of see this you know, highlighting some of the end times events. You see the church age on the far left. Obviously, this is not drawn to scale because we've got seven years right in the middle, the tribulation period, and the church, which so far is 2,000 years, uh, is, is just a small segment. But we're focusing here on the end times, and the end times begin with the rapture and end with the eternal state, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, as we talked about at the opening uh, tonight. So I believe the battle of Gog and Magog happens right here, between the rapture, which puts an end to the church age, and the start of the tribulation. 
And here's what I believe, and this is somewhat speculative. You know, we don't have an exact thus saith the Lord to, to, to make this to be dogmatic. But I believe it makes a lot of sense prophetically as I piece together uh, the, uh, the biblical data. So I believe that after the rapture, a formation in the West of an alliance, who, which is led by the man who's going to become the Antichrist, forms and invades Egypt. We read about that in Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 43. And at the same time, as we looked at in Ezekiel, and we didn't take time to read the whole section, but if you go back and look at Ezekiel 38, a northern alliance, at the same time that this western alliance is beginning to take shape, forms and comes against Israel. And this alliance, by the way, soon expands to include nations from the east, probably China. So are you keeping up with the, the connection between Russia and China these days? They try to keep a lot of that secret, but there's a lot that's right out there in the open for all to see. And a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that are geopolitical experts uh, and have top inside sources have been saying for years that when they get ready to bring America down, which they have to do to usher in the one world system, because we're the one thing standing in the way, that it will be a two-pronged attack involving China and Russia and, and many others. So again, back to my supposition, Daniel 11, a Western alliance forms, probably led by the future Antichrist. Ezekiel 38, a Northern alliance forms to come against and invade Israel. And we read about this in Ezekiel 38, 16. When they do, the Western alliance protests and says, no, 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 don't do this, Daniel 11, 44. And then we know from Ezekiel that God supernaturally intervenes to protect Israel from this you know, land of Magog and all of its allies that we just read about. And the Western alliance that had protested uh, then somehow comes off like the hero and takes credit for protecting Israel from this northern aggressor. Now, again, the Bible is clear that it's God that supernaturally protects Israel. But, you know, uh, when you're an antichrist and a deceiver, you'll, you'll take any credit you can. And so I believe that this gives the antichrist world notoriety and paves the way for his legitimacy. And he comes in and signs a peace treaty with Israel, guaranteeing them seven years of peace, Daniel 9, 27. And at that moment, so you see that here where it says Antichrist unveiled. At that moment, the, the, the people who understand Bible prophecy anyway will understand who the Antichrist is. Now, people often through the years when I've taught on this, they'll, they'll you know, split hairs and say, well, isn't it true that the Antichrist isn't really revealed as the Antichrist until the midpoint of the tribulation when he sets himself up as God and demands that the world worship him or be, have their heads chopped off? Well, yes, from a living then and there, which we won't be here then, but those alive at the time, many of them will blindly follow him during the first three and a half years, not recognizing how evil this man really is. And at the midpoint, that's when it becomes clear they made a huge mistake. I get that. But from a prophetic standpoint, once we see this man signing the peace treaty, orchestrating this peace treaty with Israel for seven years, that's when... We know that's the guy, and uh, he signs this peace treaty. So that's when I think uh, Gog and Magog will happen. Um, 
scholars are really all over the map with different scenarios that uh, some of which are more plausible than others. I, in my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, I give, I think, eight different views, uh, six of which I think are easily dismissed because they're just not possible. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't die on this hill, but this is what makes the most uh, sense to me. So we've seen the granting of statehood to Israel, the battle of Gog and Magog, and let's see if we have time to get one more in or at least get started on it. Another way in which the stage is being set prophetically is through the rise of this Antichrist we've just been talking about and his sidekick or second in command, the false prophet. You know, this is, why, this is where I really want you to pay close attention as I make the case that there's something different about today as it relates to the clear candidates for the Antichrist rising up. Because throughout the past 2,000 years, at various key moments, there have always been evil men who've risen to take center stage and tried to dominate the world. We could go back to shortly after the time of Christ with Caligula, who was an insane, cruel tyrant. He was perverse, extravagant, brutal, one of the most brutal empires Rome had ever known. And he said, let them hate so long as they fear. He wanted to take over the world. Genghis Khan, the uh, founder of the Mongol Empire, he, he, he was known for the wholesale slaughter in his conquests. You know, you've heard of leave no man behind, right? This was leave no man alive. Henry VIII, uh, he had a huge spy network, and he killed 70,000 people in his quest to take over the world, including two of his own wives. Ivan the Terrible was the Tsar of Russia in the 16th century. During his time, he doubled the territory of Russia. And uh, he showed signs of cruelty and barbarism even from childhood. He pronounced his first death sentence at the age of 13. Ivan the Terrible showed great imagination in sentencing people to some of the most painful kinds of death, including burning people at the stake, which has been a favorite of tyrants for centuries but also impaling them and, and boiling them to death. Robespierre, the reign of terror, one of the most prominent and influential figures of the French Revolution. He set up the Committee of Public Safety to spy and control the masses with great cruelty and killed some 40,000 people. Joseph Stalin, the closer we get to the, to the last of the last days, you see candidates rising up. Uh, he created the gulag system, these, these forced labor camps and prison camps. And, you know, some people say he killed 20 million people. But that figure comes from a widely contested figure put out by a man named Robert Conquest in 1968 in his famous book, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the 30s. Uh, but R.J. Rummel, another scholar, has really proven that the Conquest's uh, estimates by con by conquest are spotty at best. It doesn't even come close. The real number is something more like 43 million dead as a result of Stalin's reign of terror. I just want you to think about that number for a moment. Another way of looking at it is that a person alive during Stalin's reign had an annual risk of being murdered by the regime of one in 222. One out of every 222 people alive at the time was killed. By comparison, 
the chance of anyone dying during World War I was 1 out of 5,556. The chance of anyone dying from cancer, 1 out of 357. The chance of an American dying in a car accident, 1 out of 4,167. But if you lived during Stalin's era, 1 out of 222. What about Adolf Hitler? Did we lose our... Uh, I think it's still going for our live streamers. We lost our, uh, our screen here locally. The devil does not like us. Funny that it happened right as we were talking about uh, Hitler, huh? There we go. Very interesting. Um, anyway, obviously Adolf Hitler is widely understood as a type of Antichrist. Remember, as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, the Bible is very clear that Throughout these last days, the church age, remember last days means the church age in Scripture, uh, many antichrists, little a, have come. But one antichrist, capital A, is coming. And I believe emphatically that that man is alive today. Uh, not just a candidate, but I believe we're that close. Um, and uh, Satan is not omniscient, so he has to have his man of the hour ready at any moment. And there's no question that Hitler uh, was uh, that uh, man. And then, you know, more recently, we've got people like Augusto Pinochet, president of Chile. He seized power in a very brutal coup d'etat on September 11th, 1973. Originally, he was thought to have killed 3,000 people, but more recent studies find that number to be more like 10,000. Um, by the way, never believe the established numbers that you read in the Luciferian-controlled textbook companies and history books. And by the way, Pinochet, there's a very interesting uh, story uh, that I discuss in chapter three of my book, Great Last Day's Deception, that really is the untold story about Pinochet's rise to power and who funded it and who installed him uh, in power. Uh, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Um, and then you got Pol Pot, uh, you know, the killing fields. I mean, killed three million of his own people, a quarter of the country's population. Um, brutal, brutal, brutal dictator. Or Kim Jong-il, who's now been replaced by his son Kim Jong-un, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has been receiving, I talked about this recently, the worst scores for decades in the realm of persecution, political rights, civil liberties, those types of things. I talk about this, by the way, in uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, the whole persecute, the rise of persecution, and specifically North Korea, Korea as a benchmark. But the bottom line is governments have killed over 262 million people in the last 100 years alone. Now, if that doesn't get your attention as an indication of a sign of the times, prophetically, that the stage is being set, I don't know what will. Um, to, just to give you a perspective on this incredible murder by our government, if all of these bodies were laid head to toe, with the average height being around five feet, they would circle the earth ten times. So tyranny is nothing new. What is new, and this is what I've been leading up to, is the fact that today world leaders are openly admitting their global democide plans. They're meeting with over 2,500 other world leaders to plot, plan, and roll out a great satanic reset. 
in the past, you know, brazen talk about you know, taking over the world and I'm going to conquer this and I'm going to conquer that was largely done in secret or in just certain select regions of the world. No doubt that these, a lot of these uh, tyrants that we've looked at, you know, were, were uh, had as goals and plans and visions in their mind of taking over the world. But it's not like they were convening world congresses and summits and meetings in places, I don't know, like Davos, Switzerland, for example, and talking about what can we do to depopulate the earth and conquer the world. It was, it was isolated. But what we're clearly seeing, the stage being set for prophetically, is the rise of the one man who will succeed in that temporarily uh, before the Lord comes back and casts him into the lake of fire with his uh, vice president, I mean a false prophet. <laughs> so who is the Antichrist uh, biblically? Who is the Antichrist biblically? Well, the, the word Antichrist, it's the Greek word Antichristos, it only occurs five times in the New Testament, although there are many other names for him. Uh, and I explained this all in the early chapters of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1. But it means really two things, and depending on the context, both of them can be sort of infused into the same person, and that's what we see with the capital A Antichrist. But it means a false Christ, that is, one who sets himself up to be the Christ, but they're an imposter. But it also means against Christ, someone who opposes Christ. That's the nuance of that prefix, anti, right? Um, so uh, what do we know about him? Well, Revelation 6, he comes on the scene as the first rider on the white horse, and he goes out conquering and to conquer. This future capital A Antichrist will set out like the little a antichrist before him, to kill millions of people. And the stage is being set for this prophetically by the depopulation movement, which we'll get into next week, uh, of groups like the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and all the other Luciferian elites. If we go to 1 John 2, this is one of the two verses that serves as the premise for my two-volume set, Spirit of the Antichrist, we read, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. John goes on to say, and this is the, the uh, kind of the proof text for my whole series, uh, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, but is now, and is now already in the world. So, if the spirit of the Antichrist was already in the world 2,000 years ago in the late, the mid-90s A.D. when John wrote this, just before he wrote Revelation, how much more do you think that spirit has been, uh, have we seen an upsurge in it and intensified over the last 2,000 years? The Bible tells us evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse. As you've heard me say many times, depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't get better over time. It gets worse. So that spirit has been working for 2,000 years from Satan's perspective. Because remember, Satan's going, going to indwell the Antichrist. He's going to be, you know, Satan's man of the hour. In the final moments, he's going to have his opportunity, he thinks, to finally win the battle and conquer God and take over the world. 
Uh, that's what Satan's been striving to do all along. It's interesting to me, I know I've said this before, a lot of you may have heard me say this, and I talk about it in the books as well, but uh, for those of you that may not have heard me talk about this, I find it very st- striking that Satan, uh, the prince of demons, right, uh, a fallen angel, uh, he, he just happens to be in charge of all the fallen angels, uh, as all other fallen angels, he can indwell human beings. Uh, not believers, but unbelievers. We see demon possession uh, many times. Only two times, according to the biblical record, does Satan himself, the prince of demons, indwell a human being. And those two times uh, uh, coincide with the two times when God made himself vulnerable, came to Satan's backyard. Remember, the, the earth is the devil's playground, right? First John 5 says, um, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Remember when Job, uh, in the book of Job, when Satan approached God to get permission to attack Job? God said, where did you come from? And he goes, from walking to and fro over the earth. This is Satan's domain. That's why uh, he's called the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But anyway, so only two times does Satan himself indwell a human being. The first time was in conjunction with Christ's first advent, and he indwelt Judas so that he could make sure that Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and placed in a tomb. Problem solved, Satan thought. But of course, we know the rest of the story. Christ rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and Satan no doubt shrieked in horror when that happened. But the other time in Scripture, based on 2 Thessalonians 2, when Satan himself is going to take and indwell, a human being, is in conjunction with Christ's return. And that man is the Antichrist. Because Satan knows the Bible. He knows that there's going to be a final cosmic battle at the end of the 70th week of Daniel called Armageddon. And so he wants to be ready. And he's going to you know, garner his battle groups and battle uh, stations, and he's going to make sure that he's the guy calling the shots. So it's just interesting to me that Satan, as we read in Genesis 3.15, has been trying to conquer mankind ever since. We could go back to Genesis 6 and the, you know, uh, messing with the gene pool. We could go all through uh, time, uh, Tower of Babel, after the flood, and all of that. But uh, at the two times when Satan said, I'm not going to delegate this to my legion of demons. I'm going to handle this for myself. I want to make sure it's done right. It's when Christ the eternal Son of God, put on human flesh, came to the earth, and walked the earth. And Satan said, I've got him right where I want him. So uh, the spirit of the Antichrist has been at work, and it is clearly rising. And that's what my spirit of the Antichrist books are about. The approach we're taking in this series is not just characteristics of the Antichrist and things that he will do during that seven years that are on the rise today, but rather other basic things that are happening that are setting the stage for all end times uh, events. Um, again, I mentioned 2, Tim, 2 Thessalonians 2 here. This is talking about the Antichrist. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. As I said, when's he going to be revealed? When he signs the peace treaty. Um, he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God. Uh, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Again, there's another reference to you got to have Israel to have a temple, to have, to have a Jerusalem to have a temple. 
so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. In other words, right now, the capital A Antichrist hasn't been unveiled because there's a restraining influence happening on the earth. What is that restraining influence? Now, it's not strictly speaking the Holy Spirit. I talked about this on our podcast yesterday. Um, a lot of people say it's the uh, you know, Holy Spirit. And, and in fact, the New King James certainly implies that the Holy Spirit has an influence in this restraining, which he does. But the restraining influence is going to be removed someday. And the Holy Spirit is God. And as we talked about in our recent series on uh, the attributes of God, uh, all that God is applies to all that God is. So all of the attributes of God apply to all the attributes of God the Son and all the attributes of God the Holy Spirit. God is omnipresent. So the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. There is no place in time, space, and matter where the Holy Spirit cannot be. So we're not going to see after the rapture that the Holy Spirit per se is gone. What we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit's work in and through the church, the body of Christ, and its restraining influence is removed. And that's what he's talking about here. Not him personally, but his restraining influence will be taken out of the way. I mean, as bad as things are now, when there are uh, still Christians around the world, I mean, it's becoming harder and harder to find them, but I believe they're here. I'm pretty sure we got some of them in the room tonight. But if you think about as bad as things are now, when there's still Christians trying to stand for truth and, 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 and hold off tyranny, imagine how bad it will be when that influence of, of Christians is gone. I did a, a message, and I'm going to do a, a rehash of it in, uh, or, uh, in Claremont, Florida, coming up uh, in February, called One Minute After the Rapture. It's been several years since I did that message. I'm excited to kind of rehash it. But uh, I talk about the chaos that will ensue right after the rapture, when the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is gone as he works in and through the church. Uh, he goes on to say, Then the lawless one will be revealed after that restraining influence is gone, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. I just had to put this verse in here because it's kind of, again, the end of the story, uh, with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And again, uh, the same thing can be said of the false prophet. Going back to John, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That's Jesus' words to the future uh, nation of Israel that is alive when uh, he returns. And so uh, in Revelation 13, the Antichrist is called uh, the beast. And this is another beast talking about the false prophet coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. He's going to be many things. And uh, we're going to talk about the false beast as we go through this series. I'm, I'm pretty sure, don't hold me to this because this is the first time I think I've said anything publicly, but I'm working on my next book and I'm pretty sure it's going to be the, fall, the, the, the spirit of the false prophet hacking and tracking humanity. And I'm going to get into the biblical role that the false prophet plays in the tribulation and see how the stage is being set for that. So same idea as my two Spirit of the Antichrist books, but Spirit of the False Prophet. And he's going to do a lot of things. He's going to be a cheerleader 
for the Antichrist, as we see here. He's going to be in charge of commerce. He's going to demand that everybody worship the beast. He's going to set up images of the beast and so forth. Uh, but uh, Revelation says he deceives those who dwell on the earth. And so one of the things, we're going to stop here and, and move into the question and answer time, but one of the things that in this first section on the stage being set prophetically that you saw on the list, let me see if I can get to it, uh, that we will talk about is the increasing uh, deception. So we're going to stop with the mid-form here with the rise of the Antichrist, the false prophet. Then we'll move next week into the depopulation movement and increasing uh, deception. But uh, anyway, I hope you're beginning to see how some of these prophecies, uh, the stage is, is undoubtedly being set for uh, getting us into the last of uh, the last days. And, and that means the rapture has to be even closer because before we can get into the end times, the rapture has to happen uh, next. So any uh, questions or comments or anything that you'd like to say uh, tonight? And do we have a handheld? Perfect. So if you'll use the mic, just because we've got such a big group, I want to make sure everybody can hear it. And that way, uh, I'll still repeat it for those watching online. But who has a question? Raise your hand. Here we go. Let's go to Gary first and then Randy. Here we go. You talked about Satan indwelling a person, Judas the first time and the Antichrist the second time. Do you see that second time happening at the middle of the tribulation where he sets himself up as God? That's a great question. So the comment is about uh, the Antichrist or Satan indwelling the Antichrist. And do I see that happening at the beginning or at the midpoint? Um, most Bible teachers, dispensational guys, would say at the midpoint for sure. I've taken the view that it probably happens right at the beginning. Uh, so, again, we can't be dogmatic about the timing of it. But certainly, by the time of the abomination of desolation, which you see at the midpoint there on the screen, we know that, uh, you know, Satan has indwelt him and he's, you know, sacrificing in the temple and demanding that everybody worship him. So, but my view would be he marks him out from the beginning, probably even during the Battle of Gog and Magog, in, in my view. Randy, let's pass that microphone up here. All right, I'll take Gog, Magog for a thousand. Okay, <laughs> I'll take Gog, Magog for a thousand. All right. All right, Gog is talked about in scriptures as being the chief prince. Is that in the angelic hierarchy, or are we talking mankind hierarchy? So the question is about the leader of Magog, which, as I've said, I believe is Russia. Uh, so if we go here, um, and he's called the chief prince. Uh, it's hard to know because the term prince in Hebrew is used both of governmental leaders as well as spiritual angelic right. leaders. Um, but that's... I'm not sure where you're going, but I know one way I could go with this, but I want to hold off go on your, that. Go your way. Well, I just think that we're going to see the rise of the Nephilim, uh, which are the hybrid race of, of angelic human beings. And I may probably just lost a good number of our listeners because I don't really I haven't really taught on that a whole lot. Uh, but there's no question. I mean, not 
extensively, and I, I purposely left it out of my Spirit of the Antichrist books, but I'm pretty sure it'll make it in the next one. But the Nephilim come out of Genesis 6. It's the offspring of the unholy alliance between the fallen angels and earthly women. And I believe that according to Genesis 6-4, they're still here today. There's different viewpoints on how that happened. My viewpoint is they uh, survived the flood because they were hybrid beings. They could shapeshift uh, between physicality and spiritual form. And so, like angels, I mean, no angels died in the flood, right? They're spiritual beings. Um, so uh, I think these Nephilim did survive that way. Some people think, uh, and they've got some pretty strong evidence for it, uh, uh, and they may be right that the Nephilim are, occurred after the flood because there was continued, you know, the sin continued, uh, and these angels continued to procreate. But whatever it is, I believe that the final battle, the closer we get to the end, we're going to see more and more examples of secret leaders that are not 100% human. And I get into this in chapters 9 and 10 of uh, volume 2, at least to the extent of the paranormal and the and the uh, all kinds of uh, just uh, phenomena that are going to be happening. And let's not forget, at its core, this battle is a spiritual battle. You know, Ephesians 6 makes that clear, and we see the spiritual aspects of the battle in the tribulation. So all that to say, it's certainly possible that this leader from Russia could be any, in any number of ways uh, you know, a fallen angel type being. He could be indwelt by a demon. He could be a Nephilim. Who knows? But whatever he is, he leads that nation. Okay. So if we're talking human, that would be Medved. He is the second in command in Russia. If we're talking the hierarchy of angels, who is the chief prince? Is that Apollyon? No, Apollyon is the devil. Yeah, uh, okay, so, then. Satan. And who would be the second in I mean, we just know from, a, the question is, I keep forgetting to repeat it in case our folks here, I think you're close enough that they can hear it, but for those of you watching online or watching the video, uh, the question is, who is the second in command to Satan? Well, during the uh, tribulation, it's the Antichrist, right? You got the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. Right. But in terms of the spirit realm and the spirit beings, Ephesians 6 talks about the different categories of beings, which I believe are hierarchical in that sense. And I actually outline that in volume one when I talk about demons and fallen angels. And I say what each one of those things means, principalities, powers, and so spiritual wickedness and so forth. Uh, does he have a name? I, he might in extra biblical literature, but we can't take that to the bank. Okay. The reason for my question. If we're talking on the human level, we know the hierarchy in Russia right now. We know how Russia is moving and how we've talked before, how I believe they're going down Moldova, they're going to go into Bulgaria, etc. If we're talking on a spiritual level, then that kind of changes the game. Because that would lead me to believe that he's not on the scene yet. I mean, let's face it, Putin's not a nice guy. Kind of Ed, Lavrov, they're all whatever. But they're not truly evil. Putin is a Bible believer. He and Trump had a conversation where he asked Trump, do you think we are the leaders during Gog Magog? So the man knows his Bible well. He was brought up in a Russian Orthodox family. It's too bad he didn't ask another Bible believer. That would have been maybe more helpful. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, well, yeah, okay. the remaining people that didn't turn me off when I mentioned the Nephilim, 
just turned me off. I can promise you that. Yeah, that's probably they probably did. All right, so if we're talking on a human level, then we pretty much have a great idea of what's occurring right now. As right. we've discussed going down the west, going down the east part of Russia and Georgia, we see Gog Magog and every country is in place except for Turkey. Now, if we considered on the angelic realm, with wasn't it the Prince of Persia that caused so much trouble in Daniel 5? Yep, yep. That's what they called him, right? Yeah. All right. So if we're talking the chief prince, I'm taking we're talking somebody besides him. Yeah. So uh, let me let me kind of cut to the chase, so to speak, only because uh, when we have people watching and listening to the videos and stuff, it's hard for them to. It sounds a lot of times like real faint talking, and they're wondering what happened, and they're you know sure. calling nine one one or something. But um, so to me, it's really a distinction without a difference because. Even the human leaders, obviously, in this battle, if this is the, setting the stage for the God, Battle of Gog and Magog, as we believe it is, are satanically inspired and satanically driven, and, and he's the one orchestrating uh, these things. Um, and after the rapture, when you get into the tribulation, we know that Satan is going to perform all kinds of signs and wonders that are supernatural in nature. That's why one of the spirits of the Antichrist is the spirit of phenomena when we see a rise in unexplainable types of things. So I don't know that it really matters much in terms of where we end up, but uh, you're right. I mean, Medvedev is the, probably, the, would you say he's the heir apparent? Prime Minister, I think, and President is Putin. Yeah, but he uh, would Medvedev be kind of the one if Putin kicks the bucket that he takes over? Unless there's a coup or something. Okay. Else. Which but there is. The reason I ask is because if you notice Medvedev in the last 10 days, he's gotten much more bellicose, much more belligerent, which leads me to believe is Putin still around? Yeah. Has he lost favor? Has he lost power? Is he really sick? And are yep. we watching the next guy coming up? Because I think he'll make Putin look like a kitty cat. Yeah. Well, even CNN yesterday had a story about a growing faction in Russia, the Wagner group. I think we talked about that on the drive up. Uh, that is uh, posing some problems for us. So who knows? Who knows? It's tough to say. Somebody else. Yes. Couple of couple of quick ones. Uh, did I misunderstand? Has Israel already been granted the statehood? 1948? Yeah. Okay. So that was done. Yeah. Okay. And in Revelation 13, it talks about two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Right. And it, it also says that the Antichrist is healed from a fatal wound. Right. Yeah. Which is another sign uh, of, of him being like the Christ. Of, of identifying yeah. the Antichrist. Can you talk a little bit about what that might yeah. be? Yeah. So just for those who might not have heard the question, the first question was, uh, you know, Israel was, you know, our comment was Israel was granted statehood in 1948. They became a nation again. Uh, but the other question is, when the Antichrist receives his mortal wound in Revelation 13, uh, I've, I've talked about this and written about it extensively. I think it's a literal mortal wound. I think he literally dies and comes back to life. Um, and I think that's just another way that he mimics the miracles of Christ. Um, and uh, certainly... It shouldn't be too hard for us to wrap our heads around because there are examples in Scripture of resurrections, right, uh, other than Jesus. So, um, so I think, yeah, it's just it's it goes back to that anti-Christos. It's he's mimicking Christ, but he's the fake Christ. 
but he's also against Christ, and he'll use that to uh, garner all sorts of support. Somebody else? Yes. Okay, just hang on. Um, the riders on the uh, black, red, and pale horse are not given an identity, I guess, as of yet in history. Why are we given the rider on the pale or the white horse an identity? Yeah, so the question is about the, the first four horses of uh, the seal judgments. We talked about the Antichrist being the rider on the white horse. So uh, the way I take that, and most uh, dispensational scholars would take that, is that, the, of course, the four horsemen of the apocalypse is a phrase that we're all familiar with. Apocalypse is the Greek word revelation. It's the name of the last book of the Bible. So there's these four horsemen and horses that are talked about in Revelation chapter 6. They call those the four horsemen of of the revelation or the apocalypse. I believe each of those is a unveiling of God's judgment. And it doesn't necessarily require there to be a literal writer. It's a way of explaining how that judgment is going to happen. So you've got seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, and each of those is announcing uh, a different uh, judgment. So the the judgment of, say, for example, the pale horse's death, um, and we'd have to, I'd have to look them back up to see the exact terminology, but each one of them brings uh, judgment uh, and devastation in some manner or form from the wrath of God, the prophetic wrath of God. So I don't, I don't, I don't think we are necessarily need to identify a human being as riding those. It's just the first horse is the unveiling of the Antichrist, and so. Uh, if you look at Revelation from a literary perspective, you know, it, it basically is bookended with a rider on a white horse, the Antichrist, who's coming out to conquer. And then Revelation 19, another rider on a white horse, which is called Faithful and True, which is Jesus, the Messiah, coming back. So the first time it's an imposter who's then going to wreak havoc for seven years, and the second time it's the Christ. But I don't, I don't know that we will ever identify historically these writers i don't think it's required you know from the text if that if that makes sense thank you you bet uh anybody else all right well i want to close uh, and certainly you can email me or you know reach out anytime call me uh and uh but hopefully this was a good start uh to our series and i want to close and I'll do this at the end uh, with some just uh, quick announcements. Uh, obviously, we've mentioned the Spirit of the Antichrist uh, books. We're picking up new uh, listeners and viewers all the time. I know for some of you, especially if you're Plum Creek folks, you're thinking, you know, we've, we, we have the book, you know. But uh, we want to mention that that's out there. If you don't have it, there's some out in the lobby. If you're a guest with us tonight, uh, feel free to take one. We do. The church buys those books at cost. And so if you can throw a little money in the box out there to help recover the cost for the church, we would appreciate uh, that. Uh, but other books that are relevant to this series, I have two other end times books called What Lies Ahead and the Great Last Day's Deception. Just want to mention those. Uh, we do have some of those out there as well. Again, same thing. If you'd like to take one, just maybe put uh, some money in the box to help the church recover their cost. And then, as I mentioned, all of the charts that we're seeing throughout this series, 
I put together some of my most requested ones in more than 100 color charts, and that's the chart book that's also available at notbyworks.org or out there on the table. Uh, I want to continue to remind you, and these are right around the corner now. Two weeks from now, we'll be headed to Claremont, Florida for the What Is, what is This World Coming To conference. That will be live streamed as well. Uh, and then so will the Orlando Prophecy Summit two weeks later, uh, in, uh, sponsored by Prophecy Watchers. And I can't wait for that. I'm really excited about that. That one, you both of them you have to register for. Uh, but uh, the Orlando Prophecy Summit, even if you're live streaming it, you have to sign up and register and pay the, a small fee to have access to all the speakers. There's like 16 speakers uh, at that conference. Can't wait. Uh, we are excited this week. Uh, so far, we've got two uh, podcasts that aired with uh, Mondo Gonzalez. So first one was yesterday, The Myth That Refuses to Die. These are short, sort of Joe Rogan-style podcasts where we sit down at a table and just talk for 10 minutes about an issue. And this is the, the uh, Mondo and I debunking that uh, uh, myth about the rapture, that it was you know, made up by some demon-possessed woman, and we, we put that to rest. And the one that dropped today was called How Many Raptures Are There? Again, another 8- to 10-minute podcast. You can check that out uh, at notbyworks.org slash podcasts. Uh, We've had a busy week the last few days, you know, already. We've done uh, the podcast with Bill Perkins yesterday on God's 7,000-year plan of the ages. That was about a 45-minute podcast. And then uh, this morning, we had one that was with Brian and Kathleen uh, Melanakis of Biblical Citizens Less to Roll. Uh, that was on, uh, I forget what we called it, uh, Strange Happenings. They, they kind of talked about it in their uh, introduction. So anyway, check those out, and uh, and then other than that, uh, we wish hope hope you enjoyed it tonight, and really hope you'll come back next week. Bring a friend. Uh, if you ever can't come, just go to uh, notbyworks.org or plumcreekchapel.org, and we can li- you can live stream it, uh, and then of course the videos will be posted you know by later tonight, uh, and you can watch the video or audio only. Any last minute questions? Yes. So the question is, which book would be good to read uh, first? Uh, I mean, if you want just a general overview of God's plan of the ages, you know, and all the biblical doctrine of the end times, then what lies ahead would be a good one. Um, if you want to kind of uh, a little uh, a primer on God, Satan's plan in his side of the battle, then The Great Last Day's Deception was uh, my first discussion of that. That one was twenty years or 10 years ago. And then, of course, the Spirit of the Antichrist is a comprehensive, you know, two volumes, blow by blow, of how we're getting ready for the rise of the Antichrist. But probably uh, what, what, uh, what lies ahead would be a good place to start. Okay, well, thank you guys. Appreciate you being here. We will see you uh, Sunday. If you don't have a church home, come join us at Plum Creek. Uh, uh, great body of believers here. So honored to be a part of it. But if not, we'll see you next uh, Tuesday.